Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, the movement to adjust law enforcement funding could be getting some pushback from North Carolina lawmakers. And the NAACP puts more legal pressure on the former president. Hello and thanks for joining us on Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. This week, we're starting with the NAACP's new lawsuit against former President Trump for breaking a 150-year-old law. His former lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, and two extremist groups are also named as defendants. The lawsuit accuses them of violating a piece of legislation passed back in 1871, meant to fight intimidation from the KKK against lawmakers. We have stepped up in this moment to ensure the former president and all those who were involved are held accountable for their activities. Well, of course, Trump's recent impeachment trial ended with his acquittal. Here to discuss this and some of our other headlines are Mary C. Curtis, a columnist for Roll Call and host of the Equal Time podcast, Morrisville Town Councilman Steve Rao, and Lamisha Whittington, deputy director at Advanced Carolina and a college professor at Meredith College. Welcome to all three of you. So happy to have you with us today. Let's get started talking about this uh, lawsuit by the NAACP. Mary, can you um, share your thoughts about kind of the how how effective this is going to be? They practically said that they were invited to file this lawsuit, uh, saying, quote, uh, we have a, well, rather quoting Mitch McConnell, who said, we have a criminal justice system in this country. We have civil litigation. So do you think that they're going to have more success in our criminal uh, justice courts than, say, with Congress? Well, I don't know what kind of success they will have, but it's so interesting when you look at the wording of that statute from 1871, which was passed, you know, after the Civil War, uh, when so many states were trying to come back and, and limit the rights of African Americans at that time. And it talks about very clearly that it's intended to protect against conspiracies through violence and intimidation that sought to prevent members of Congress from discharging their official duties. Well, look what happened on January 6th when you saw this mob attack Congress, the Capitol, to try to keep them from dispatching their duties, which was to certify the votes of the Electoral College. Uh, and Mitch McConnell, while he voted to acquit, it was on a technicality that he said that it was unconstitutional. But his speech clearly uh, said that the House managers made their case, uh, and he turned it over to the criminal justice system. So I just think it's interesting when you look at the history of our country to see that these same problems of intimidation uh, for the rights of certain groups, it comes up again and again. And I definitely think that they should investigate it. It doesn't sound as far-fetched as some would say, uh, because the, the wording of that law actually is there to keep from uh, the intimidation. And you see folks like the FBI saying that the greatest threat to America right now, as far as terrorism, is domestic, not foreign terrorism, from that, these white supremacist groups. Yeah, the, most, the domestic terrorism issue is, is really valid, but I just thought it was curious that they had to go back to a pre-Civil War law 
<laughs> as the basis of this lawsuit. And Steve, you know, one of the things that um, uh, the, the, the representative who is also uh, pursuing this suit said, along with NAACP, is that um, they're not only pursuing it on the grounds of this particular law, but they, they intend to, to put <clears throat> Trump out of business. And I just wondered, you know, is, is that one of the goals? Is, is that a, a good enough goal to pursue this lawsuit? Well, I personally do believe it is. I mean, as Mary Curtis said, I, I think it's just, uh, you know, you have to hold people accountable for their actions. And in this case, this president and his advisors, by, you know, saying that they weren't involved or that, you know, they, they couldn't control it, I mean, he's the president of the United States. And him and Rudy Giuliani, I, did, they, I think you can't connect them to conspiracy uh, that they did not stop this. And uh, to answer your question, I don't think it's going too far to, say, put him out of business because I think now that he's been acquitted, uh, he can run again for the presidency. And I think it's really important, whoever that person is, but in this case, Donald Trump, that he, he wouldn't be able to do something like this again. Because we're sending a message that if elections don't work out and if you don't like the people who won, you don't like the outcome of your election, we're going to storm the Capitol, we're going to riot, we're going to intimidate with fear. And this is not what we do in the United States. So I don't think it's going too far. And I do think that they should try to uh, put him out of business, which means make sure that he can't run again. And if he does, make sure that he can never do this again. L.A., what do you think in terms of the message that this sends, regardless of what happens? Absolutely. Uh, as Steve already mentioned, we have to show a strong uh, message, not only for our federal and congressional levels, but also locally. When we're talking about down-ballot races, the fact that it is a municipal year, our communities are looking for a strong message to say that we matter, uh, that our democracy matters, that systematic racism that we are currently facing uh, and have been, as it is the tapestry of this country, we need to push back on also the legislators in our state that have been emboldened by this previous Trump administration to do such egregious actions as Senate Bill 100 that just came through on Monday. Uh, and so when we see these certain actions, we see that we also have to meet, uh, you know, some would say fire with fire. Well, this is fire. Uh, and we have to hold the line because even with a new administration, communities are still suffering. Our pandemic hasn't ended. And so a strong messaging is needed to push back. A newly filed bill in North Carolina's General Assembly is getting a lot of attention this week. SB 100 would impact the funding cities and counties receive from the state if they decrease funding for law enforcement by a certain amount. Calls to defund the police grew louder after the death of George Floyd, sparking protests like this one in Raleigh. The bill still has several hurdles to clear before it hits Governor Cooper's desk. L.A., you were talking about SB 100. What, what's the real... Um, message that you get from this act to try to control funding based on how funds happen at the local level? Plain and simple. Uh, it's a manipulation tactic, and it places our local electeds in uh, a rock and a hard place, as we say in the South. Uh, it is making our local electeds choose between listening to their constituents, the voters in the community that came out in mass following, as, as you already stated, uh, the murders of, of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Uh, community said, we want to reassess police reformation through the budget, uh, aka defund the police. That is the title that the community has created and advocates, right, to just talk to the budget. And so that is what our local elected leaders have heard 
word for the past almost year. Uh, that was the modern day civil rights movement, the largest on record globally last year. This is the next iteration of our civil rights movement. And so when we see that our legislators are prioritizing, right, the police budget, over the community outcry that's also placing these local elected officials to choose between the constituents and their voters in a very critical municipal election year that we hope will actually happen, right? And choosing the funding that these communities need from the state, our tax dollars, by the way, uh, to make sure that our communities are supported in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of historical houselessness, evictions, utility shutoffs, right? Uh, the disenfranchisement that occurred last year during voting. This is what our uh, local electors are having to choose. And placing them in this position is unfair, it's undemocratic, and it doesn't actually listen to the people who our hard-earned tax dollars are going to pay these police budgets. Steve, this issue is not something that's exclusive to uh, the interests of African Americans. What do you think the response is or, or the care is for removing these monuments? Do they create an offense for other minority groups? Well, I think, yeah, the, the public policy needs to be that we can't have any monuments up that uh, showcase individuals in our country that um, fought for racism, slavery, and um, dividing America. And, and so, I think the first thing is that we have to make sure from a policy perspective that we don't allow these monuments to be uh, listed up there in public. And I think we have to also hold all Americans to the same standard. You know, uh, I would like to see a list of, you know, all of the individuals that, uh, that were steering through the Capitol, that were kicking in the speaker's mirror, that, uh, you know, had Alexandria Cortez hiding under her desk, afraid she was going to be killed, and even Speaker Pelosi emotional, worrying for her own life. Um, you know, we didn't see tear gas. We didn't see lots of arrests. At least I didn't see that on TV. Maybe it did happen. So I think we need to make sure that, uh, you know, all minorities and all individuals are held to the same standard as any American, right? And so I think that's what I would like to see moving forward. This is treason. And anyone who did this should go to prison, and they should not be able to speak on behalf of any organization ever again. I don't care whether it's the president or any citizen or nation. And this affects all minorities and all people of color. And it has to stop. Well, hopefully we'll get to talk a little bit more about um, inequity in terms of public response to what happened at the Capitol and public response to um, some of the, the protests that happened during the summer. But I want to stick with um, something that uh, I think is a, a critical issue because, because Lawmakers are saying it is. We have a, a public health crisis right now in COVID. And my question, L.A., is, is this the time to, uh, you know, focus on defunding or reducing um, resources for police when there's a great need in every community for th that kind of resource and others? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, it is absolutely the time. And the reason I say that is because last year in the midst of pandemic, we had to face that uh, racial violence uh, was a bit more dangerous than the pandemic, uh, which is why we saw folks take to the streets. And when we're talking about defunding the police, let's be very clear, right? We, we oftentimes hear kind of the argument on both sides to say, okay, defunding the police, what does that mean? 
uh, what does that mean in terms of resources? Those resources can be assessed to be allocated to community interventionists, uh, licensed therapists and, and, and domestic psychologists that can support uh, the resolutions that we need and the restorative justice that we need in communities that would prevent houselessness, that would prevent uh, the atrocities of pandemic and exacerbated health disparities. Let's be very clear. Uh, just last year, when we were protesting defund the police, there was also a death uh, investigation record that was almost passed in a Senate bill at the same time that folks were protesting. This investigation record would have literally hidden uh, the cause of death if, if someone would have died in custody in a prison or jail facility all the way through. Why is that a concern? Because while the community was protesting against this very issue, it was about to pass again from our legislature. So when we're talking about, we can do both and. We need resources to address houselessness. We need resources to address health disparities, but we can also do that with the egregious budgets that are set aside for policing budgets that are not adequately actually protecting our communities. And historically, and I'll say this one last thing, historically, the black codes that followed the abolishment of slavery was instituted in order to police black people. There were egregious laws, such as it was unlawful for black folks to be unemployed, for African-Americans uh, to even congregate in community without being in the presence of a, a white person. This set up policing structure that is still embedded in the policies today. If we're not overhauling these antiquated policies that were prior to the Jim Crow era, we can't expect them to adequately resolve or to prioritize black communities and BIPOC communities safety. And that is a priority when it comes to resources. We have to live to receive those resources. There's so many issues that kind of converge together when we take a look at what happened over the summer and we take a look at what happened on the Capitol. We're, we've moved past the elections. We've moved past uh, the inauguration. We've now moved past uh, impeachment. And, and Steve, you know, now where do you think a lot of the focus really needs to drill down on? Oh, just in terms of the turbulence we're in in the country, I mean, I think we have to look at priorities. Any crisis, you got to stabilize the operations, and then you got to figure out how you're going to break away and get back to normal. So I think the first thing is critical is vaccinating the American people, making sure that we get more vac mass vaccination sites so we get herd immunity. Once we do that, it's going to get easier to build the economy back. Uh, loan forgiveness, which we're going to talk about maybe later today, uh, you know, helping put more money in the hands of Americans with the stimulus relief. Uh, loans to businesses. And then, and then, of course, many of the other executive orders addressing systemic racism, uh, climate change, uh, immigration reform. But I think it has to be, there's been no president that's dealt with more crisis in one time than Joseph R. Biden. The only one in, that we can remember in history is maybe Lincoln, who saved the Union, and obviously Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who was dealing with the Great Depression and World War II. Uh, well, but, you know, Steve, no. I appreciate that lift because I do want to talk a little bit about student loan forgiveness. And in fact, the idea of student loan forgiveness has picked up momentum again in recent months. But President Biden is making it clear that if that happens, it won't be for the $50,000 that's been proposed. It depends on whether or not you go to a private university or public university. It depends on the idea that I say to a community, I'm going to forgive the debt, the billions of dollars of debt for people who have gone to Harvard and Yale in terms of student debt. Well, those comments, uh, which came during a CNN town hall, were not received very well at all. In fact, President Biden says he doesn't have the authority to write off any more 
than $10,000 in federal student loan debt. Federal data shows that more than a third of all borrowers owe less than that. So taking it back to my panel, I, wa I want to open up with you, um, Mary, because um, President Biden has a pretty strong approval rating right now. What kind of a dent can this thing put in that approval rating? Well, you can see uh, he's trying, he said, for this unity, and he's going to do what he can, and he's trying for compromise on this. But some are saying that the premise that only a certain kind of student goes to elite schools uh, and others go to state schools, well, that's faulty, because there are all kinds of students that go to schools like Harvard and Yale, uh, and as well as state schools. Um, and so the students are saying, yes, it will help. But for some, and we see that black and brown students in particular, uh, are really hit with these huge uh, loan debts. So they're the ones with all of this. Uh, so they will be affected. And they're saying, uh, you know, some are saying, well, you're punishing people who have managed to pay off these debts. But it's not because they don't care about them or they're profligate. It's because many have said, uh, particularly if you're poor or, or a minority student, education is the way out. So you take that opportunity but then you pile up these debts and it's really hard to pay back. So um, they're saying a little help is fine, but you know, um, we have these debts that are really hurting us and, and we need to actually get some loan forgiveness um, and right. it's, it's not it's, it's a huge elite. problem. It's a huge problem yes. for a lot of folks coming out of school. And I think that that comment about heart, you know, not wanting to to pay for the education of people who are coming out of Harvard and so forth is really interesting that you brought up because you have all kinds of students attending, yes. um, and, and that's quite a tuition to have to deal with. Um, and LA, I, I wanted to get your thoughts on, uh, you know, what kind of dent this might be putting in his approval rating, particularly among millennials. Right. So let's think about the framing in which, uh, you know, we turned the tides on a historical election. Uh, African-American voters and black youth voters uh, came out in mass in millions to support this administration based on the platform. There were, you know, many elevations, but one was definitely student debt relief. When we're talking about pandemic, many students were displaced. We don't talk about the homeless and the houseless rates that actually increase due to student displacement. So folks were trying to make ends meet. Uh, we were talking about students who uh, were then going back home to become franchise workers, corporate workers, essential workers that were facing the brunt of COVID-19 contractions. And in our state, we didn't have OSHA protected uh, class for COVID-19. These were the barriers that are already impacting students who were facing student debt. And so voting and turning out in mass to support this, this, you know, new presidential administration was the hope of saying, here comes relief. Uh, I didn't even qualify this for the stimulus check for most college students. That didn't occur. So as a professor, I have to engage with students who didn't uh, receive the stimulus checks. So here is the hope to receive that relief in a different form. And now it's not here. It's not coming. Uh, it's very disingenuous. And when we talk about black youth voter turnout in North Carolina was lower uh, than previous years, it's not due to apathy. It's also due to the aforementioned list of barriers, impediments, and illnesses that are now contracted or exacerbated due to COVID-19. And this relief would have gone a long way and still can. <laughs> we can rectify this. I'm saying this to the Biden administration to support these students uh, to survive a pandemic and get their education and be debt free. Steve, let me quickly get your response on that as well. Uh, well, you know, I think that $50,000 is just, it's $10,000 is not a drop in the bucket. I think you've got to 
you know, you got to uh, forgive more loans. And I think on this one, I would agree with the professor. The president needs to uh, do what he said he was going to do, get the bill back better. But we also have to build back smarter. And I think it comes down to focus. I know doctors in the triangle that are getting stimulus checks uh, before the stimulus relief bill. And then people out there making less than $60,000 that aren't getting checks. So for me, I think the priority needs to be maximizing the amount of loan forgiveness. $50,000 loan forgiveness or more could be a life changer for someone out of college or going to graduate school. So they can save up emergency funds. They can free up their cash. They can also invest in their savings. But there's too many Americans living check to check. So I think on this one, I would say the president needs to focus in his efforts on economic recovery and resiliency for the American people. The stimulus bill, there's so much that it does. They could cut some stuff out and phase it in, in my opinion. Well, I want to stick with you, Steve, because we're going to turn and, and talk about a national issue. The White House is rolling out a proposal that would overhaul U.S. immigration laws while acknowledging passing it may be tough. Among the proposed changes, giving millions of people a path to citizenship, expanded visas, and fewer restrictions for families, according to the Pew Research Center, there were at least 4.2 million black immigrants living in the U.S. as of 2016. And those immigrants and their children are about one-fifth of our country's overall black population. And Steve, I know that you've done a lot of research on this. In fact, you have an op-ed that appeared in a, on WREL. And I wanted to ask you, in addition to some of these policy measures, is there some work that needs to happen in terms of, of public education to make sure that not only are the doors being open, but they're being open with welcome? Absolutely, Deborah. And I mean, I think that the first of all, we need to educate the American people, all Americans, is that a solid and comprehensive and smart immigration system is critical to the economic success of our nation and North Carolina uh, for all Americans. I mean, just think about it. A fifth of our software programmers are uh, many are from foreign countries in science and engineering, a third of our agricultural workers, a third of our construction workers. And these are immigrants that are coming from all walks of life. And so this bill actually accelerates the path of citizenship for skill-based H-1B green card holders, many from India, but 40,000 in the triangle. It's going to make it easier for the undocumented immigrants to get legal status. And they bring in about 32 million to our economy, and that could go up by 18 percent if we accelerate the path. So it's critically important by welcoming people in from around the world that are producing to the American economy, that are creating jobs of the economy and the new economy, it's critical. And so, uh, you know, we have to educate our legislators on both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democrat. And I'll end with this. We wouldn't Zoom, we wouldn't Google, we wouldn't buy a Tesla, we wouldn't be watching SpaceX. Um, we wouldn't have any of these things if it wasn't been for immigrants. 40, yeah, so 44, and, it's, and we don't, do we want those entrepreneurs going somewhere else in the world? You know, you make some really good points. Thank you so much. And uh, Mary, I want to just continue with you. You've actually addressed this issue also in your coverage on the Equal Time podcast, a really great conversation you had with Cecilia Munoz. And uh, I wanted you to share just a little bit of some of the, um, the great takeaways or the things that you wanted to know from her about immigration. Yeah, it was great because she was an official, uh, the first uh, Hispanic woman in uh, the Obama administration to hold that post uh, as a domestic uh, policy uh, senior leader. And yes, we talked about a lot of issues and, you know, it's been used to immigration as this demagogic issue. We saw the former president, the previous president, 
start his campaign talking about immigrants from Mexico as rapists and so forth, and they really cut the number uh, of immigrants uh, legally allowed into the United States, legal immigration. We saw the efforts for the wall and also children in cages. So she had advised also the Biden administration pre-election and talked about all the different ways that they are opening up the caps on immigration. Uh, and also, there's so many issues that the American people agree on when it comes to this, especially when it comes to the DREAMers, uh, DACA recipients, which most people really do want them to have an accelerated path to citizenship, since most were brought to this country when they were young, and this is the only country they know. Of course, uh, as Steve has talked about, we do have these uh, black immigrants, uh, and as usual, uh, of course, they're bearing the brunt of some of the harsher policies. Um, but yes, these are issues. They might have to break up some of the uh, immigration pieces of the bill, but we do see this comprehensive plan. And as Steve said, these are folks who are already giving to our communities taxes, what and so forth. Um, and so it, it is pretty exciting to see this comprehensive plan, an accelerated uh, a schedule to have folks who are here undocumented or non-citizens, as they're called now in the new bill, to get that path in eight years to citizenship. Um, and so it will be, I think, a hard, it, uh, it is education, as Steve said, because we have seen so many falsehoods put out about what immigrants do bring to this country. But I do believe uh, when you do educate the public, and, and of course, they are part of our communities now, that's um, absolutely so, right. Yeah. And I want to bring, I want to get Lamisha in here for a comment because she has an opportunity to have uh, interaction with our younger generation. I just wanted to get your feedback on what's being talked about. Is there excitement also about immigration policy among younger people? Absolutely. Um, I'm honored to be a part of a formation called the North Carolina Black and Brown Policy Network. And it's one of the first networks that is explicitly black and brown organizations and leaders have come together. And so some of even the um, unfair, unjust immigration laws that are coming through, such as Senate Bill 101 uh, and other such Senate bills um, that are pushing back against protections on our uh, communities, we're in a joint effort together. Uh, and that's what we saw. Let's, again, use last year's idea representation of what we've seen over the years. There is no BIPOC agenda without the BIPOC people. And we are in alignment with if one of us is oppressed, all of us are oppressed. When we talk about the impacts of hurricane and natural disasters, because voting, uh, this pandemic and hurricane season, they all collide. And we are going to have to expect that uh, this year again. Uh, most of our farm workers, uh, our students who are working diligently in eastern North Carolina, they are impacted by these hurricanes. When we saw migrant communities impacted on Ocracoke Island uh, just a year and a half ago, they were stranded on that island because they were devalued. We have seen that systemic uh, racism in the tapestry of this country, and every life matters. And so that's exactly what we're hearing on the ground is we are one. Uh, we are together, and one move for civil human rights is a move for all of us to actually create the pro-democracy agenda that we need. And finally, need it seems that, that things are coming together. It's the unity that we're all hoping for. Lamisha Whittington, Steve Rao, Mary C. Curtis, thank you so much for your insights and for being here. If you'd like to reach us, you can do so on Twitter or Instagram. Just use the hashtag NC Black Issues. You can also find our other episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt Noel. Thank you for watching.